From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I am actually great. How are you? <laughs> Oh, I'm doing well. You had to think about that for a moment. I did. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I am doing well. So on the day we're recording, of course, in in this week, a a lot of big big stuff happened over on the Diz. We launched our new logo. Exactly. Which was very exciting. And I personally like the logo. And I... I wanted to give my perspective as, you know, as, as folks know, I'm the Disney historian for the Diz. And when I looked at the logo, I saw so much Disney history in it. And I felt, you know, there's an all kinds of stuff posted on, on social media and the Diz boards and here, there and everywhere. But I wanted to I wanted to share my thoughts on it just from the perspective as the Disney historian for the Diz. And I probably have read way too much into it. And um, Will, who designed our Connecting with Walt logo, designed this logo. And when he hears this, he's probably going to think, wow, you really put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but firstly, what I like is the essence of the original logo is still there. You know, we, we still have that, that charming USB cord and, and the Diz Orange. Exactly. You know? Yep. And, but, you know, the, the biggest number of comments I have seen on the Diz boards and social media is the font in that it harkens back to Disneyland. And, you know, of course, if you're a Walt Disney Worlder, you're, you're, you've, you're afraid, some of you that the Diz focus is going to be less Walt Disney World centric. And of course, Disneylanders are thinking, oh boy, our time has come. But what I wanted to point out when I looked at it is from a historic point of view, if you look at the title credits, and and Craig, you probably can comment on this, um, for many of Walt Disney's classic classic animated and live action feature films, you'll see a very similar font was used way back then for those credits. And yeah. yeah. And so then when Walt launched his television show, the font was also used for that title. And this stylized font actually became associated with the Disney brand. So there was no park yet. Um, So when Disneyland opened and then later the Disneyland Hotel, of course, the same font style was used uh, in signage, brochures and advertising again because they were they they had established a brand. This type of font was associated with Disney by that time. And so when I looked that Will had used this font, I didn't see this as an association with Disneyland. I saw it as an association with Disney. And of course, the 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 Dis Unplugged is, you know, it, it is a, a it's a travel show. 
you know, most of the shows are travel-related yeah. shows related to Disney parks. So I don't, I didn't see this as focused on one park or yeah. the other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the big thing. The whole point of the relaunch logo is kind of the marriage of the two brands of uh, Walt Disney World and Disneyland. So mm-hmm. uh, with the logo, it just kind of inevitably turned into a little bit more than uh, was even anticipated. I We haven't released like the early mock-ups of it, but I, I will say it, it originally with the DIS how's it goes it's always had the disneyland d in there but originally the s was a little bit more inspired by uh disney cruise lines uh, s mm-hmm. and like the very uh the um I, I can't think of the the term for that entire style back in like the 20s um it, which is going to drive me nuts now it's all i'm going to be able to think about but uh, originally, the S that we were working with was going to harken back to Disney Cruise Line. The I was going to fit more into Disney World. So it was going to show like our, our main three all together. Unfortunately, to make that work, uh, it was all going to have to be lowercase. And, uh, of course, Diz is, it stands for Disney Information Station, not mm-hmm. Disney, not just like chopping off... Uh, the first three letters with it so it all had to be capitalized and that took away a little bit of the the actual vision with it but uh so like you pointed out the orange is still in there that's a big that is that was the uh the walt disney world edition's color and still remains Mm -hmm. its color so we're taking our branding from back in the day and marriaging it with the disneyland look and feel to it but uh, again like you said too it's uh, we look at that d and while it does it does instantly jump out to you as disneyland to us it's just it it more or less says classic disney uh there are many people out there apparently who think it's only disneyland and i I hope you listen to michael (laughs) (laughs) that's right he was speaking about that because it's it is bigger than just disneyland so sometimes images images get attached to something when that's not a fair representation on it mm-hmm. so yeah, i won't talk absolutely. about any historic ones like so. that <laughs> and then there's the television and uh, a lot of folks thought well you're not on tv but i saw this as a very clever nod to the pioneering use of social media in waltz time married to the early years of the internet by Pete Warner, who, of course, started the Diz, started with the Diz boards. And when you think about it, what was the mass social media communication that Walt pioneered? It was television. Um, he used the medium to uh, help finance his park, to get folks excited about visiting the park after it opened, and to promote his films. Television was social media. And the Diz you know, founded by Pete, was also a pioneer in modern social media. And I, so that's why I like, you know, the, our little USB cord is still beneath the television. So I think it's, this is a nice connection between the eras, the sort of the start of social media with television the, and how the Diz has moved from, you know, being on, online only to, you know, as a, a, a forum to also now being video. Yeah, and that's like the entire original logo, the the plug uh, pulled out. That's that the whole sense of that was before the Diz was only online, and now thanks to 
thanks to iTunes and with the podcast, you can now literally unplug and take it anywhere you wanted to. And, uh, you know, so that's why we had to still leave the USB in there. But ultimately, the our, our main focus has shifted on video. And I know that that's really tough for a lot of audio only listeners out there. Uh, but that that is the future with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, while podcasts are huge, our audience growth is is coming because of video, not because of audio. And so we've we've had to work and embrace that. And uh, it's you know while while people do watch plenty of videos on their iPhone and their their computers and not necessarily a TV, let alone the retro TV. Uh, it, at the end of the day, it's we try to shoot everything that it could look good on a TV, and that's mm-hmm. kind of our mindset with it, and okay. and that's that's what that's what we're going for. Yeah. It, but plus, it looks better than than just throwing an, an iPhone on there. <laughs> it does, and and see, and that's why connecting as well is audio only because see, they're not going to throw me up there because they only put what looks good. Up, up on TV. Oh, you're you're on plenty of videos when we get you out that's here. That's true. That's true. Now I'm going to plug our connecting swap logo again because when I first discussed it with Will Perry, I said I wanted the look of the logo to have the feel of Marceline and Main Street USA, which were both close to Walt's heart, and he did a magnificent job with that. And the connecting with Walt logo represents the era of Walt's life that Walt said had the most important effect on himself, and. I like this 50s retro style logo uh, of the disc because it represents that era where um, Walt and the studio were arguably at their creative peak. There were several animated and live action films that were in various stages of development. Several Disney television shows were on the air. Uh, Disneyland was opening. So both the Connecting with Walt logo and the new Diz logo complement each other because to me they reflect two significant eras of Walt's life. And I think also the retro style of both logos give them a, a timelessness. So, um, absolutely. So, and I've I've just the last little throw on with it, too. If it wasn't a retro TV, we couldn't have the hidden Mickey ears. That was my next, that was my next (laughs) thing. Ah, the hidden Mickey ears are so clever, very clever. Yeah, I I think it was Corey who insisted on, uh, insisted on having hidden mickeys in there still because Mm -hmm. on our on our old logo we had the mickey in the actual plug so he he wanted to keep that up in there so it's Mm -hmm. a a nice clever way of keeping it apart i agree yeah that was great so so these are my reasons from the from the historian's point of view why i enjoy our our new logo and and uh so i hope um it gives you a a different appreciation for it as well and i'll probably get an email from will saying oh boy were you off base but but anyway but but it's this is just one person's of you know thoughts on it so anyway and 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 of course, Craig, you debuted a new show this week. Yeah, the the Disneyland edition is back, mm-hmm. and uh, it's now on video format, as we've been pushing from the start uh, with the whole rebranding and relaunching with it. So you can find it at youtube.com slash disunplugged. It's going to release every Monday, uh, just like the, the Disneyland 
show was before that. And uh, yeah, I just uh, just want to definitely give it a plug. Tell tell everyone to go out and watch it. So uh, obviously, it's it's very different because it's it's hosted by Pete and Rhino out of Orlando, and then uh, bringing in people from the West Coast via via the internet. Um, so it, it's very different right from the start, but uh, it's it, it's going to be a, a learning experience here for a while. So I'm I'm sure the team's going to get their their legs under them, and the topics are going to start to come together, and the flow is going to come together. But uh, ultimately, it's it just it's it, it's different, and not everyone's going to love it. But it's. I, I think that there's still a lot of good in it. Uh, it oh, it absolutely. is, and on top of that too, I just want to address it. Uh, it's not. This isn't an instance where uh, just because just because it's being completely changed uh, that no one's still going to pop up from the other shows. In fact, uh, it's it, the first couple ones that are being released are going to be just the small team involved because technologically wise we're, we're trying to to make sure that everything is working correctly before we start adding people but uh, i can confirm that mary joe will be joining in on episodes when she's available uh luella who you might remember from our trivia uh mm-hmm. last week as well as this week mm-hmm. uh, she will she'll be joining us in it and uh, I, I'm not sure about everyone else. I, it, there might be times where they are brought in as well, too, to round it out uh, based on trips to Disneyland and such. Uh, but alongside with that, there at times and topics, there's going to be uh, vlogs and other video packages put together in these shows to go alongside. And sometimes they might feature uh, uh, other people from the team. So it's... It, it's going to try to be a blend, but ultimately a, a big part of the issue is we're recording these shows at a early time on our coast, which makes it very difficult to uh, bring in everyone out in Disneyland because a, they have to wake up extremely early and then they have to be available on the weekdays. It's, uh, we, we love you guys so much, but, um, uh, there is no way in, and I'll get out that I'm going to go to my boss's house at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night to, to record <laughs> a show when everyone is, is available. Uh, and ultimately, uh, just not to get too business-wise in it, but ultimately, you know, we our, our whole goal is to try to get people to travel, not... Not just uh, not just help them with their traveling, but provide the best way for them to. And uh, so, so as a business owner, Pete made the choice that that uh, he wanted to try to shift the focus more to help uh, with the things that he sees a need for out of uh, Pete trying to get people to Disneyland. And uh, that's that's why the decision was made. But I just want to I just want to say that it that's not trying to undervalue anyone who was on the Disneyland team before and is still a part of that Disneyland team. They're, they're all very important still. Tom uh, is killing it with content right now on the actual website, uh, making sure Disneyland is as best as it can be on WDW info. Mary Jo and Nancy are still going to the parks all the time. Uh, and you know, you can't, 
it, it you can never replace Tony's food reviews, which were always a highlight. And you know, luckily enough, we still have Michael here on connecting with Walt uh, weekly to to help fill that gap. But uh, it's, it's not trying to take anything away from the old Disneyland team. They're all very important, and we we want to just try to blend it all together as best as we can. Great. Thank you. Yes, I've, I enjoyed the first show. I'm looking forward to um, watching many, many more episodes. So that show's near and dear to my heart, as you know. So. Yep. All right. Great. Well, in past episodes, Craig and I have talked about how we attempt to connect with Walt and carry on his legacy in our daily lives. What we've noticed is how references to Walt are present where you least expect it. And we've both experienced how his history and legacy have been carried on in the international Disney theme parks. Back in October, I shared my travel experiences touring the Tokyo Hong Kong and Shanghai Disney Parks on an Adventures by Disney Tour, customized and enhanced by our sponsor, Dreams Unlimited Travel. And in our last episode, we spoke with Jeff Curdy about his new book, Travels with Disney, A Photographic Journey Around the World. And in this episode, we're going to continue our Disney adventures with Craig, who is going to share stories about his recent travels to Italy and Disneyland Paris and the Disney connections he came across. So, so Craig, I, a, a while back, you first went to Italy, and this was not necessarily a uh, a Disney tour, but no. I know that you you came across some uh, some Disney connections along the way. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, th- just a little background because you in many ways you traveled in the footsteps of Walt yeah. um, you know it, despite Walt Disney being born at a time when it was still common to see horse-drawn carriages alongside motor cars in the towns and cities of the United States and long-distance travel was by steam locomotive and steamships you know Walt had an interest in traveling the world and did so during his lifetime uh, Walt Disney began working his first feature film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1932. By 1935, Walt was so absorbed by the project, his brother Roy became concerned about Walt's health and that he might be heading towards a nervous breakdown as Walt had in 1931. So Roy suggested he and Walt take a trip to Europe with their wives, Edna and Lillian. So the two couples left Los Angeles by train on June 2nd, 1935, and after a brief stopover in Chicago, they arrived in New York on June 6th, and they boarded the brand new ship Normandy, which was the crown jewel of the French line for a two-month trip through the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and finally Italy. Now, a press agent had stated at the beginning of the trip that the group would meet with Italian dictator Benito Mussolini and have an audience with the Pope. But in reality, neither events took place. They did not meet Mussolini, but did meet his daughter and her husband. Um, Nor did they have an audience with Pope Pius XI. Um, The trip to Italy was a business trip for Roy to establish a licensing relationship for Mickey Mouse with Mondadori Publishing and to deal with an unpleasant situation with their company's representatives in Milan. For Walt, 
Italy was a public relations trip. Uh, Lillian and Edna spent much of the time relaxing at the Villa d'Este at Lake Como before they uh, traveled to Rome. Um, In Rome, they toured St. Peter's Basilica and Vatican City. Uh, The couples then traveled to Naples by train and afterwards drove to Pompeii and Sorrento. And on July 24th, after six weeks in Europe, Walt, Lily, and Roy and Edna boarded the Italian liner Rex for, in Naples for their return home. And that classic photo of Walt and Lillian on the deck of a ship with Walt holding Mickey, that is in many of the Disney Cruise Line staterooms, was taken on board the Rex. Um, this European trip had a great impact on Walt. Uh, not only did he bring back more than 300 books, he had a deeper understanding that what he had created mattered not just in the United States, but around the world. So, so Craig, you and your wife, Kylie, just like Walt, you know, you, you traveled to Italy. Yeah. And so, so what were some, so tell us about that trip and what were some of your uh, Disney connections? Yeah, well, I first off, I can't believe that... Uh, that we kind of went a little bit along the way together. I didn't stay in Lake Como at any point in time, so that's that's another trip in the future. Uh, but definitely went through Rome and uh, St. Peter's Basilica and Vatican City, as well as uh, eventually went to Naples, uh, where where Pompeii is. So we uh, we did follow each other a little bit, uh, but not a lot. So just to to recap, people on that for those who don't remember. But uh, we, the ultimate reason why we went to Italy was to uh, check out the Viking Ocean Cruise, technically it was. So it's uh, on, a, on a, a Viking Ocean liner. Uh, but basically our itinerary was we were going from Rome and stopping at many ports along the way, just circling around the boot and ending up in Venice. So, uh, but we, we couldn't just leave it at that one time so we had to tag on extra days ahead of time in rome as well as as well as after in venice to to get a little bit more of the city in there and and that was uh that was essentially the itinerary that we followed and uh there's there were a few connections to to disney that were glaring along the way with this trip uh but not i was expecting to find a lot more so uh the the main uh, obviously the the main thing that uh i feel like was the biggest connections was uh definitely in terms of merchandise and that is i did not expect to stumble across disney stores in rome and venice uh i don't know why it didn't cross my mind that there would be international Disney stores, but I guess yeah, I never I never really thought about it, and so it was quite quite a surprise and uh, so that was, there was nothing more odd than being just like walking over the canals of Venice and crossing all these bridges and then randomly stumbling upon a brightly lit, just really packed and busy Disney store. <laughs> so is Steffi as big in Italy as he is in like Hong Kong and um, Tokyo? <laughs> no, I, would, I wouldn't I would go that far. Uh, <laughs> but it, it felt like, it, you know, there was, I think, 
I want to say I saw a lot of locals going into the Disney store. I mean, not necessarily locals from those cities, but actual Italians. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like a situation where it was like, okay, well, this is here for tourists because ultimately uh, the merchandise wasn't really focused around tourists. So they did have exclusive mugs and and T-shirts that. You know, they said Venice and Rome on them, and uh, they they definitely they they pushed the fact that there was a couple items that you could get exclusively in Italy. But I mean, that's that's essentially it in terms of stuff marked for the actual location. I I was expecting a little bit more, but uh, ultimately, you know, I as much as I want to take home extra mugs when you are limited on weight and luggage traveling mm-hmm. internationally mugs do not get the the precedence that they get uh <laughs> when traveling domestically so uh but uh, otherwise i mean it was exactly what you would expect from normal average disney stores uh, just a whole bunch of plushes uh, t-shirts you know it's just like being in a normal one so uh we did have uh, a couple members of our group uh say that they found plushes over there that they could not find anywhere here so i guess i guess maybe that is a thing where there's some unique and interesting uh, uh plushes all around there but uh you know i I'll, I'll be honest when it comes to that stuff and you walk into like two disney stores everything just starts looking like the same um <laughs> so i'm not sure i could be that that perceptive on it but that's obviously the the biggest connection going involved and uh kind of along the lines of another connection with merchandise i don't know why it didn't dawn on me but in in rome and venice in particular there was an absolute influx of pinocchio merchandise and uh Ah. obviously not not our pinocchio that we know and love as Walt Disney fans, but just uh, a lot of marionettes of Pinocchio in general, because uh, it's, you know, I, I forget all the time that that story takes place in Northern Italy in the, the Alps, but uh, it does. It's not Germany, even though all the cuckoo clocks and stuff, it, it is Italy and the name is very Italian as it is, Mm -hmm. but um, it was, it was just one of those souvenirs. I know you and I talk about it so much on on the show about our love for Pinocchio and just how underrated is as as a Disney movie in general. So this was something that I really wanted to take home a piece of that story and and legacy with me. And ultimately, I didn't. But oh, I thought you were going to say you you got a hand carved Pinocchio, I marionette. Or something. I that was one of those things that I said to myself, it's fine. I I'm not going to buy it at any of these stores. I'll wait till I'm at the airport and I'll just pick the cheapest knockoff that I can find, and I'm okay with that. And uh, then you get to the airport and realize, well, they don't have any of what I was expecting <laughs> to find. So I guess I'm going home empty-handed. But uh, the the oddest oddest part of italy and saw it in in many cities in rome i believe i saw it when we took a day trip to florence uh definitely saw it in naples as well as um i think it would have been in uh messina which was part of sicily but uh it 
the the biggest connection there is uh, they had all these pop up little. I, I don't want to say like it's kind of like fairs, uh, picture fair rides. Uh, like mm-hmm. the really tiny ones that stay on the ground, carousels, you know, uh, maybe in some cases like the little whip rides, uh, things like that. But all of these little small fairs where there's all these attractions that kids could ride, they were all done with the the scheme of knockoff Disney characters. And uh, when I say knockoff, I mean it is clearly Mickey, Donald. Goofy, Pluto, uh, all you know, all the main characters plus uh, princesses, Snow White, Cinderella, uh, in some cases newer characters from the newer movies. They're they're all plastered all throughout these little uh, attractions, except they just look like a local artist who was trying to draw them off of memory was actually oh. the one who who did the paintings on them. So they just looked atrociously awful. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, you didn't see them absolutely, like, everywhere. It wasn't, like, every 10 feet you walk, but those first couple places we stopped at, I, I found it every single one we went to. There was there was always these little fairs set up, and I'm trying... I forgot to bring up the picture ahead of time, and I'll, I'll attach it to our show notes. Because I know I took a picture of one after, like, the second or third time seeing it. I finally had to just, like, snap a picture. Like, this is this is awful. I need to be able to remember it for a while. Uh, but I, I will attach that into our show notes so other people can join in the merriment of how awful this thing is. But, yeah, the one picture I got, it's, like, a, Mickey's head is, like, orange. And... Donald looks Donald looks like he's just really 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 on some sort of drugs and it's just it's so bad it's these are these are just <laughs> downright awful but uh, you know, at the at the California State Fair in the little kitty land fun area there are similar kind of uh, little spinny rides that are knockoffs of you know the, 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 they sort of look like Dumbo but not mm-hmm. quite, or or the little kitty cars, and they sort of look like Lightning McQueen, but not quite. <laughs> but you know that they're trying to get you to think it's a it's a Disney attract, oh. Disney you know ride. Yeah. yeah, and with these, it's it's clear that it's okay. Well, if we we put Disney characters all over the place, then people are going to want to come over here, especially kids, because they see the characters. So it's a great ploy to get customers but uh ultimately it's when you walk away from italy saying those were the big connections is seeing these <laughs> tiny rundown little pop-up fairs with disney characters that that doesn't say a lot for italy but yeah it's uh i i, I don't know if italian culture embraces disney as a whole i i couldn't really find that there a listener um, who was on your trip, and I, I can't remember their name, they posted, I think it was on our Connecting with Walt um, page, uh, Twitter page, at Connecting Walt. It looked like he might have been in like a, a open-air market or something, and somebody was selling like Carnival masks, similar to the masks that they sell in the Italy Pavilion at yeah. um, Epcot Center, but they were Mickey and Minnie. 
that they had oh, some Mickey wow. and Minnie masks in there. I maybe even a Donald Duck. I'm not sure. In with the more traditional, you know, masks and animal masks and things like that. So he, it's it's on our um, Twitter page. Yeah, I didn't. I, I'll have to go look at that too. I did not mm-hmm. see that, but um, it it there definitely were some of the masks uh, that were were not just straightforward themed and of course the venetian masks are just absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. uh as you're going around venice and there's the couple good stores that are nice and authentic and the rest are just uh knockoff uh made in china ones and I, i'm sure the disney ones probably fell <laughs> into into that category but I, I will say that also since you brought up the mask and how how we can go to epcot it in that pavilion and buy those masks it was it was cool to see them actually over in venice and not only that but the italy pavilion at epcot is inspired by venice with um and and um and uh the entire saint mark's piazza so Mm. it's having like where the perfume store and where all the masks is that's modeled after doge's palace and then then the tower is obviously piping up there. So I, I do like, and well, and then also having the gondola pools in, in the water right across from it. So I do enjoy that anytime now I go back to, back to uh, Epcot and I, I look at that pavilion now, it can take me back to being on that trip. So, and I, I haven't had that experience with anywhere else. So, cause like when we went to Germany, uh, we did not see anything reminiscent to what is at the the German pavilion, but this one felt truly, truly authentic. So mm-hmm. that's a that's a cool thing to have. It is. I had that experience, you know, and I now go to the China pavilion because that was based, you know, on the Temple of Heaven. Yeah, you know uh, that that we went to in yeah, so you cool. know in China, and of course I've been to Japan a couple of times now. And so the uh, so so I can identify with the Japan Pavilion, and and some of the things that I saw yeah. in Japan. So it that is neat. So it really is. Yeah, it, yeah. it makes it makes our world feel smaller but bigger at the same time. And and a hap- and a happy one. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and well, and then you uh, continued your world travels recently. It, folks who listen to either our Walt Disney World show or our Dreams Unlimited Travel show know that you you had a quick jaunt to uh, Disneyland Paris recently. And so, how did that trip come about? Yeah, it's uh, completely unintentional, uh, not planned at all. So at the last second, um, and by last second, I mean about a week's notice, Disney invited us out to Disneyland Paris to cover their inaugural Fan Days event. And uh, with the with the stipulation that they were paying for the airfare, they were going to pay for the hotel, the tickets to the event, park admission, uh, it, literally everything. Um, and... Uh, I could have got out of that trip without spending a single dime uh, on any food or just really anything. So uh, that was that was how it came about. And uh, you know, when you get when you get the invitation to go to Disneyland Paris without having to to pay anything, of course, that's not really a, a situation where you can say no to. <laughs> um, oh, I know. <laughs> so I I 
it came down to not necessarily where we going. It came down to who was going to go, and uh, I ended up pulling the straw to to head out and cover the fan days event. And you know, I, I couldn't just go there for that and that alone. So they were they were giving us uh, three nights in a hotel out there, and so that meant I would have a day uh, to just experience the parks as a as a guest so i i had to take advantage of that too so it i got about as rough as an idea of though the whole resort as i could in the shortest of times but i i'm glad i did it was it was a very good research trip well we're and at some point, we are going to do an in-depth uh, sort of examination on, on the history of the park, because it is fascinating how it came about yeah. and, and was constructed. But we're, we're going to take you, Greg's going to take us through through a little tour of it. I'm going to give you just a little history of the park. Uh, Disneyland Paris is, your, is Europe's leading tourist attraction. It opened on April 12th, 1992. More people visit Disneyland Paris than the Eiffel Tower. After the Instant success of the 1983 opening of Disneyland Paris, the, or I should say of, um, I should say of Disneyland, uh, I'm, I, blah, I messed that up. So, after the instant success of the 1903 opening, actually, of Tokyo Disneyland, uh, the Disney theme park division began looking at other areas for international expansion. So, in late 1984, Dick Nunes and Jim Cora presented a list of approximately 1,200 potential European locations. And by March 1995, locations had been narrowed down to Spain and France. And the site of a rural town in Marne Valley, uh, which is, I apologize to our French listeners, um, in France <laughs> was uh, was chosen because of its proximity to Paris and its central location in Western Europe. This location was estimated to be no more than a four-hour drive for 68 million people and no more than a two-hour flight for another 300 million people. So the new Imagineering Chief Operating Officer, Mickey Steinberg, he traveled to Paris to oversee the construction and to make sure the park opened on time. And Imagineer Tony Baxter was assigned as the executive producer of Euro Disneyland, which was the name of uh, Disneyland Paris, its original name. And that and he led the creative development of the park. One of Tony's tasks was to adjust Disney's storytelling to each of the realms so that it felt comfortable for European guests. And, and, and I'm sure Craig will, will tell us if he was successful. <laughs> um, um, so, for example, one challenge was the castle, and we've we've talked about this on previous episodes. Um, how would they present a castle in the center of the park in a region full of authentic castles within a short drive in any direction? So Tony and his creative team made the decision to redesign a castle completely different from any other park. So it's not much larger than the original Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland Anaheim, but it's a more fanciful castle in a fairy tale setting atop a hillside where a dragon would live underneath. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. so I'll just say, is a actual scope of the the size of the attraction it, it or the castle it just feels so massive uh it's 
It, it truly is the most beautiful Disney castle I've seen. And I, you know, I know I still haven't seen Shanghai's, which I, I've seen the pictures of, but I haven't seen it in person. But I, I don't... I don't foresee ever seeing a Disney castle better than this one. And it's not just that the castle is is picturesque and beautiful with the Ivan Earl kind of designs leading up into it. It's it's just that there's all these paths surrounding the castle as a whole. So you can get lost just walking around it, but it gives you these views up where it feels like the castle goes on forever. Like, you know, we can kind of get those views at Disneyland and uh, Magic Kingdom when you're standing, like, right on the drawbridge looking straight up. But that's about it. But here, it's it, there's just so many more paths around it that, that you get an even more interesting look at the, the depth of the castle. And on top of that, it's it, once you get inside... You actually have a Sleeping Beauty walkthrough there that's more open air, uh, just completely different than the one in in Disneyland. And, uh, of course, it goes without saying, you mentioned uh, the, the dragons living underneath the hills, and they have the entire basement area just filled with, uh, with the dragon, and it's just it's eerie it's dark it's impressive it's really one of those things you you have to see it in person to understand it it's just incredible i'm looking forward to seeing that someday my last park and then i'll have seen them all yes now now you know another example of how they adapted you know the lands you know frontierland's vision of the american west had to be adapted to of the Western United States, because Europeans enjoy the romance of John Wayne, Native Americans, and Monument Valley, and um, and then Discoveryland replaced Tomorrowland because Tony and his team wanted to avoid the problem of built-in obsolescence. That is a problem with that land and other Disney parks. Uh, there was also a contractual agreement by Disney to vote an area of the park to French culture. And Tony thought that Discoveryland would be a good place for this, and the Imagineers designed it to be a land that celebrates the dreams of the future. Um, European culture is reflected, for example, in Space Mountain, which is based on Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, and the Orbitron's futuristic design is reminiscent of Leonardo da Vinci. Um, so um, other realms were designed to be very familiar to any Disney theme park guests. Uh, Main Street USA evokes the same nostalgia as uh, the other parks. Adventureland is exotic and mysterious, and Fantasyland brings many of Walt Disney's animated films to life. So, so Craig, I'm just going to now let you lead us through your adventures in Disneyland Paris. Yeah, I... I think I'm going to focus. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to have a little bit of focus with this, but it, it's very, it, it's very easy to just get lost in talking about <laughs> uh, this park over and over again. Um, it's, it, it really is uh, kind of like the castle I already pointed out. It's just so incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's, it, I feel like there's not a ton of attractions. At this place, according to DisneylandParis.com, there is 
technically 40 attractions. Uh, mm-hmm. That being said, like they consider the two arcades um, on of Main Street as attractions, which which they technically are. I would I would call them walkthrough attractions. Um, but they list the now, 40. You're but, not talking. You're not talking about like video arcades, or you might have to. Oh, I was yeah, I was gonna get there. Um, okay. Yeah. But, so uh, they they list a lot of like walkthroughs and um, and other random little things as attractions, but there's there's not a lot to this park. But uh, I, I'll go through it a little bit in terms of the unique things, and then uh, of ones that are we have the same uh, attractions. I'll go over uh, what makes them a little bit more special here, but uh, it it kind of starts on the outside of Disneyland Park. A big aspect of it as you're walking up to the park entrance is the fact that the Disneyland Hotel there is on top of the entrance of Disneyland Park, Mm -hmm. uh, which it's very interesting to see because, you know, you're Hey, you're expecting to walk up and see a classic entrance with a train station uh, like you see at other Disney parks and that's just that that's just or the castle parks in particular and that's just not here uh, but what it does is it makes for a really beautiful photo op with all these fountains and and topiaries out front of the entrance and then it, it does hide that it hides that reveal and it actually ends up hiding it again because once you get into the park, then you still have that train station design that we know and love walking through the tunnels before the Main Street USA reveal. And then finally you get your first look at Main Street and in the castle itself. So it's, it is almost a labyrinth just to get in and get those views that we, we know and love from Disney parks. And the first... The first big difference, uh, as I already mentioned, the arcades, and uh, you brought up what type of arcades. Well, uh, when you say arcades, actually, these are in Disneyland Paris. I don't know if it's just a common term for arcades, but uh, there they have their Main Street USA that runs right down the middle, just like just like Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, and the other parks. But then they have the gift shops and the restaurants right on the next side, uh, right where they are in any other main street. But then on the opposite side, they have the two arcades, which is the discovery arcade and, uh, the Liberty arcade. And essentially these are covered pathways that you could use at the end of the night. If things are crazy going down main street, if it's raining, uh, if you just need a kind of a cooler place to hide away from the sun. These are, are covered walkways that go the entire length of Main Street USA and have a couple entry points on each side as well as as well as um, uh, entrances to all the gift shops just from the backside. And hmm. it's it seems like such a a simple thing, but it is just it's so beautifully designed. It's it feels very uh, turn of the century world's fair idea when I walk through it. Like uh, the one thing it, it brought to my mind when I first stepped in and saw the arcades, it reminded me of the scene in um, the American adventure when they're at the world's fair and the, 
you know, you have um, Carnegie and mm-hmm. and Bell and all of them like kind of pull in. It's that same look and aesthetic to it. So there's all this electricity uh, running through the air with uh, running through the building with these lights. But then they also still maintain the gas lanterns inside. Uh, there's plenty of tables set up so you can just stop and sit and relax in there. And uh, I said there was the two sides, the Liberty Arcade and uh, the Discovery Arcade. Basically, the Liberty Arcade it tells the story of the Statue of Liberty and uh-huh. along the way. So not while you're walking, you also get a story involved with it in the Discovery Arcade tells the story of just kind of uh, innovation around the turn of the century. Uh, as a whole so it's it serves so many purposes it serves as that covered walkway and it serves as as an attraction into itself because you can you can make a learning lesson out of it so uh that's that's like the most amazing part of their main street uh besides also then having waltz which disney was kind enough to to put us there for um for a a lunch one day so i got to go in i won't comment on the food since i i didn't pay for it it wouldn't be fair to do that but uh the, the restaurant is you might remember michael talking about it in the disneyland of our dreams episode how he would put that in his main street usa and i will just say you will not be disappointed when I you saw finally get photos. to see it it looked incredibly detailed and elaborate and so, lavish so much. Uh, I honestly, we were in the restaurant for probably about two hours, and I probably spent a solid, a solid twenty to thirty minutes just walking around, taking in the atmosphere of all the different rooms because the entire restaurant, uh, the downstairs, is themed to Walt himself and has a lot of uh, a lot of photos and little props helping to commemorate Walt Disney. And then as you make your way upstairs, you go into the the different realms of Disneyland Park with Main Street USA, Adventureland, Frontierland, Discoveryland, uh, Fantasyland. And the amount of pictures, props all throughout there, it's just, you get so lost in it. Um, it's it, it, it really is just one of the most beautiful restaurants I've ever been in anywhere. It's as, as a Disney fan, it, it felt perfect. Hmm. So, so what, uh, what dining room did you eat in? And at least tell us what you ate. Oh, we were in, uh, the, we were in the frontier land, mm-hmm. one of those dining rooms. And it was focusing on, uh, we were, we had a lot of like uh, riverboat artwork in our room so it was kind of that area of frontier land so some of the rooms were split up and uh because they had so much to cover they were able to add in a little bit more uh but that's that's the room that we were in and i did have uh one of the famous items that's on there is a, their signature uh cheeseburger which mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's you get a sticker shock when you look at the menu because it's forty nine euros for it, and you wonder to yourself what kind of cheeseburger could ever cost uh, fifty euros. And depending on the conversion at the time, you know fifty five, close to sixty dollars maybe uh, in a, in uh, U S dollars. But uh, essentially, it was um, it was uh, braised beef. 
So, mm, okay. uh, you know, it's it's not unheard of to to see like a, a braised beef uh, in a Disney park at like $40 for an entree. So it was a very fancy version of that served with Walt's chili and uh, and then french fries as well too and that's wow that was my entree that's Um, a hearty meal it it, well well, that was just the main i had a caesar (laughs) salad for my my appetizer which was very filling and then i chose uh i chose the very american apple cobbler as my dessert Mm. so uh i i will say it's the you will get sticker shock from looking at it but uh but it's. I was willing to pay for the meal on my own. That was one of the places that I, I knew the prices going into it. I didn't expect that Disney was going to uh, treat us to a lunch there. Otherwise, that was on my list of things to do on Sunday on my free day. So uh, it's uh, it, you just accept the price with with uh, with as what it is to get in and actually see the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, that's that's kind of Main Street in a whole. There's plenty of other little touches. Like I, I enjoyed that they had their Gibson Girl ice cream there too. Uh, it's except it's not in the place that Gibson Girl is in Disneyland. It's in the place where our ice cream store is in Magic Kingdom. Oh, okay. So that kind of messes with your mind when you see Gibson Girl in the wrong place. Uh, but and Casey's was in the correct place though, and had a scrim around it while I was there, so that felt like just being at home. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but that that was that was Main Street as a whole. Uh, one of the things once you get to the end of Main Street to the hub area, it's very the navigation should be a lot easier than it is. But I will say there, it doesn't feel like there's any one general way to get around this park. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I have to ask. I'm sorry to interrupt. I have to ask well, before we totally leave Main Street. I know in your design of your dreams, you wanted the Main Street vehicles, and uh, oh, they were there. Did they did they have a lot of Main Street vehicles? Yeah. Same as Disneyland. I would okay. say it was kind of in between the two. Uh, okay. It's they didn't have the lack of Magic Kingdom, but they still didn't have the immense amount that Disneyland has. Okay. So, but they did. They did have plenty out and about. So it. It went my appetite. I'll say that. Oh, much. good. Did they have a magic shop on Main Street and a real theater? Uh, or a cinema, I should say? I don't know. It was all shopping. Okay. So yeah. more, more closer to Walt Disney World. Yeah. And I don't. Okay. I, they're, honestly, I, I didn't have a ton of time for even shopping. So I went in to browse some gift shops to look for stuff for me as well as like books for you. Mm-hmm. And I just i struck out in the couple like i went in the emporium and it was their emporium felt like what ours does in the magic kingdom except like cut the amount of stuff they have in half oh so uh i was i was expecting to find a lot more uh unique disneyland paris merchandise not not stuff that's there was a lot of stuff that was clearly like this is designed for european audiences uh, but it didn't say Disneyland Paris on it. And I'm one of those people, I, I like stuff that says where I'm at on it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm already prepared when I go to Tokyo to just be disappointed. So, um, <laughs> But I, I kind of walked away from Disneyland Paris with the same way. There was some some little unique stuff, but even then it felt like most of the, the cool stuff that was marked with the, the name of the park was for women. 
So, hmm. uh, but yeah, um, Adventureland is actually not in the same place as it is in ours. So when you leave the hub area and you take that first left, you actually go to Frontierland first, oh. uh, which that that kept me uh, that kept me kind of feeling a little bit confused. But uh, unfortunately, the marquee attraction of Adventure or, uh, Frontierland, sorry, is currently closed for another couple months at the point of recording this, uh, and that's Phantom Manor. Mm-hmm. So. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about that. Yeah. Uh, when you were back there, they announced they are bringing back the Vincent Price yeah. uh, narration, which is very exciting because I have that recording. Yeah, I, I've yeah. heard it before, too. And yeah. uh, that it's I, I will say that uh, at least I know I have a reason why I need to go back. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if not just to see more of it is to, to get to experience Phantom Manor. But... Frontierland overall aesthetically has a very similar feel to to both Magic Kingdoms and Disneyland's Frontierland. Uh, I, I like that when you first walk in, you kind of walk through a same fort similar to Disneyland's, except then it takes a little bit of Magic Kingdom's Tom Sawyer Island's fort and has areas where you can walk through it. So oh, it's it's yeah. kind of like a marriage of the two in a great mm-hmm. way. Um, I like that. Yeah, and you know they still have, they still have their riverboat that uh, will go around uh, their their rivers of America. It's not nearly as impressive as our <laughs> our riverboat, uh, but it it still does exist. So um, it's nice seeing it there. It was cute. Apparently, it breaks down all the time from. Uh, what people were saying so oh how sad i wonder yeah. if they i wonder if the journey is closer to disneyland so there's a lot to see and there's a narration or closer to what D- disney world's yeah. magic kingdom where it's it's just a lovely um journey to look yeah. at from what i was told it's mostly just a lovely journey but oh, okay. uh, unique to their frontier land is big thunder mountain railroad is actually the center of the rivers there instead of a Tom Sawyer Island. And this is, this poses a very uh, cool concept to their big Thunder Mountain Railroad because it has to get from the loading area, which is not on the island, to the island. And Ooh. so uh, obviously the only way to get there without ruining the the look and giving the riverboats a way to get around is by tunnels through the water and that's i will just say it is such a simple simple thing having uh, having tunnels in this roller coaster taking it went from one location to another but the inclusion of the tunnels made for the, one of the best starts to an attraction as well as arguably my favorite ending to any Disney coaster. Um, really? Wow. Yeah. The The start of it felt very felt very much like uh, Space Mountain going through the star uh, star tunnel and mm. kind of that way, darker you couldn't see, but kind of had that same feel like you drop in and it's the first thing you go through and then you start the lift but uh, with the ending here, it's it's one of those things you have to just experience it. You can't 
you can't prepare any anyone for it. It it this was my favorite attraction walking away, and I never thought I would speak of the day where Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was my favorite attraction in a park. Yeah, because I know out of the roller coasters, it's my second favorite usually in a Disney theme park with. Matterhorn at Disneyland being my favorite. Yeah. But so that's exciting that it's that cool. It I, I cannot wait for the day to get back it out has, and ride it again. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was it was that cool. Yeah. Um, I, and I would imagine if you're going into the dark like that right away, it must really give you the feel you're going into a mine. Yes. If you're going down and all that. So Oh, it was it was yeah. very well themed in that mm-hmm. regards. Um, but I'll move into Adventureland next, which is kind of in the area that you would expect uh, Frontierland or, in our case, uh, in Magic Kingdom, like Liberty Square to be in. And this is this is a massive land with uh, mostly actually walkthrough attractions throughout it. So there are two marquee attractions, one of them being uh, one of them being Pirates of the Caribbean and. Uh, of course, that's uh, a, a lot of people rave about this Pirates of the Caribbean as being one of the best. Um, you know, I, I think arguably I heard many people say that this one was the best until Shanghai Disneyland opened up and had their version of Pirates of the Caribbean. But uh, this one just it was very similar to Disneyland's. It just told the story a little bit better. In my opinion, not, not, and that's not even fair to say because the Disneyland story makes sense with its progression starting in the bayou, uh, going through the caves, and then eventually getting to the the actual town and mm-hmm. going back up the waterfall. This one uh, just had it, it basically you start in the Caribbean right away, so thematically makes a lot of sense there and. It jumps into the action almost almost immediately with pirates right away, and you get those warning that warnings that pirates are going to be ahead, and and then eventually you get into the iconic scenes uh, that you would get in any of the other Pirates of the Caribbean. But then after you're done with those scenes, then you get into uh, the caves and all of that, and then it ends with a very cool uh, a very cool Barbosa effect where uh, the skeleton goes from a human to a skeleton in front of your eyes um, right where the the pirate is holding on to the steering wheel of the ship and the flashing lights so it, it was a very unique and very cool Pirates of the Caribbean some of the animatronics didn't feel like they were kept up as well as they could but I am guessing that's more or less a thing of of um, Paris as a whole, that their upkeep yeah. on animatronics isn't going to be as strong as our domestic parks, right? And supposedly they're they're working on that, from what I understand. Yeah, I, I, now, I, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Now you saw the new scene, the redhead scene, because they were the first yes. ones to get it. Did, yeah. And is it is it identical to? Have you seen the Magic Kingdom scene? Yeah, it's it's pretty much identical. Um, it's. It, in terms of where the, the where the animatronics are and stuff, it is it is basically the exact same. So, mm-hmm. but obviously in French, uh, you lose the you lose the dialogue with it. You kind of just more or less smile at how pretty it looks. So, <laughs> it's it's that way in in Shanghai too. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, um, the other attraction that is pretty popular in their uh, in their Adventureland is the Indiana Jones in the Temple of Peril, which. Mm-hmm. Don't expect Indiana Jones Adventure. It's not that. It is kind of an off-the-shelf coaster with one loop that was apparently added in uh, to the park because there wasn't enough thrills. And uh, basically, this it almost it felt like a good classic Disney attraction, a Disney roller coaster. Because when I got off of it, my back hurt so bad. Um, so it felt like riding the Matterhorn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but. I- I think they were building a version of this. I'm almost positive it was in Shanghai, but it was not done yet. It was popular. I will say that. I don't think it was warranted in the popularity, uh, but it was popular. Um, In terms of other things in here, uh, kind of the same but different, there was a lot of walkthroughs in this. So they not only did they have uh, Swiss Family Robinson, which was uh, Swiss Family Treehouse, which standard nothing really to say that's different about the other ones but uh here in Adventureland is where they had a bunch of the caves that we're used to on our tom sawyer island uh that was all around the skull rock area because they took that nod from classic disneyland and have uh, skull rock right next to the pirate ship which is just one of the greatest photo ops mm-hmm. you could have uh they they also in Adventureland they have a walkthrough uh, of the story of aladdin which is very random and the only section of the park that's themed to kind of that side of adventure, but it's very cool. It's like your Sleeping Beauty walkthrough, but with Aladdin. And just just very well done. Um, But that'll take me into Fantasyland. uh, Oh, did you go on their Space Mountain? I did. I'll oh, we're in Discovery a different, Land. Or different Discovery Land. That's right. Yeah, because the map I have, it's it's organized very strangely. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> everything is organized very strangely, uh, including the maps. The online maps okay. were not easy. Uh, mm-hmm. I was hoping for just like PDFs, like we get from all of our domestic parks, but mm-hmm. of course they couldn't make that that easy but uh, Fantasyland in terms of attractions they had a lot of your classic ones they had Peter Pan's Flight Pinocchio Snow White Dumbo uh, Mad Tea Party you know just uh, it's a small world they had all those classics in the carousel and uh, I I did do the the dark ones in particular uh, Peter Pan Snow White and Pinocchio and I was happy to report that uh that Pinocchio and Snow White were all in French. And so oh. that was just a, a great, unique experience. Now, being which, able to version, hear which version of Snow White did they have? It was... Or, or was it unique? It was. I would consider Snow White to be unique. Uh, if anything, a blend of the two. So okay. uh, it, very, it felt longer and it felt very thought out. And same with... Pinocchio obviously mimicked Disneyland's, but it felt like they had added maybe like one or two little extra props or scenes throughout to help flesh out the story a little bit more, which I I could understand that with Tony Baxter's influence on this park. uh, Maybe after he was done with the Pinocchio in Disneyland, he decided he wanted a couple more additions in the one in Paris when they added it. So 
that's that was at least is what I chalked it up to. And Peter Pan's flight was was closer to Disneyland's at the same like it had the Starfield room and much of the scenes were pretty much the exact same just maybe one or two elements that were a little bit different from Disneyland's but Peter Pan's flight was nearly a replica of of Disneyland's and on top of that it was very bizarre that their ride vehicles had uh, allowed for four people two seats in the front and two in the back mm-hmm. instead of just two seat uh two seat boats and but at the same time too it still had an 80 minute wait the entire time so amazing yeah i guess it just even with extra capacity it all just is always still busy um but the main things i want to talk about in fantasy land is it's a small world uh you know all the small worlds are just a little bit different and this is no this is no different uh just in terms of the three that I've experienced, Disneyland, Magic Kingdoms, and this, this one was had so much happening around you that you really needed multiple rides to see everything. Like even even from a filming aspect of it, I felt like I was constantly looking back and forth, and it made for terrible video because you just you couldn't you couldn't stay focused on one thing for more than a second because it was that packed in there. So. It was it, it was very very well done. Uh, definitely a highlight for me because I did love they, it's a small world. I do too. Yeah. Did they have the Disney characters in this one? Yes. No. Wait. <laughs> no. Okay. Honestly, now I don't remember. I don't they, think they did. They only just added them into Tokyo's. No, so they that's didn't. why I was wondering if they've caught up. No, yeah. they didn't in this one. No, they they didn't. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like I'm trying to think of it. I just watched the video of it too. I watched back my video of it, and the only the only reason why I keep getting caught up is uh, I just keep thinking about all the clips that I shot of like Teresa and Mary Jo, and it's a small world in Disneyland. Uh, with the characters in the background and seeing it. So my mind is just blending two things together. But no, it does not have the characters in it. Um, but there are plenty of characters still around. Uh, one place that you can see a lot of characters is actually in a place I didn't expect, but that's the the uh, Alice in Wonderland Labyrinth, which is unique to... A very unique attraction in that they made this maze of Alice in Wonderland that is, uh, you know, it's very easy to navigate around. But at the same time, still, it's it's filled with all these different animatronics with uh, with the uh, Cheshire Cat, um, the Queen of Hearts, a bunch of the the cards throughout it. It was just it, it was it was cool. It was, oh, that is neat. Yeah, it was really well done. And they had the Queen's Castle in the middle of it, or part of the, the ending to it. So uh, if, you, if you climbed all the way to the top, you just had some stunning views of Fantasyland as a whole. So that was really neat. And then insane but different in the back, uh, I guess it's only open on weekends, but they had a Storybook Land Canal boats mm-hmm. as well. Not Not with cast members on it, just self-propelled boats with uh where you just 
floated around and looked at all the sites with hearing some music, uh, but still pretty and, and unique, uh, not the exact same uh, models and stuff as Disneyland, which I enjoyed that. Some were the same. You know, they had like Aladdin and you went in the Cave of Wonders and that, but they didn't have the the amazing uh, beginning of it that Disneyland has. Uh, but but still pretty cool. And then they also had the Casey Jr. Circus Train, except instead of like the nice little tractor ride that it is in Disneyland, this is kind of like a little mini roller coaster. Uh, that was Walt's original concept for it. Well, it's it, going to be a little roller coaster. It worked because like they it went so fast that like you couldn't really stare at anything for too long and plenty of bank turns little hills up and down it i really would say it's like it was a good introduction uh kitty coaster so um it's it was not what i expected from it so because i i love the one in disneyland because it really is just like a little simple tractor ride but uh here it was it was actually slightly thrilling so cool uh, now when you say these are self-propelled boats i I mean it's it's like in pirates of the caribbean or it's a small world i mean it's not like paddle boat no it's on it's on a track so it's it's being propelled by the track under it's not okay so like that in disneyland too it's just there's not a cast member on there spieling and and you know acting like they're driving it around Um, Mm -hmm. and i know they do have controls to to make it go faster or slower, but these are all just timed. So, okay. um, definitely, definitely different. But, uh, the last land to talk about is discovery land. And, uh, as you mentioned, kind of in the intro to it, mm-hmm. it, it does have that, that classic look to it. That is very, very Jules Verne all throughout. And I, I mean, just, I, I loved the entire aesthetic. I know that this is a blend between between Tomorrowland and Discovery Bay, mm-hmm. and it just worked so well. And uh, I, I could have stood and took photos of the Nautilus in the waters out front of Space Mountain for hours and hours and hours uh, throughout the day with different lighting on it. This was just a stunning, gorgeous land. Um, and the, the marquee attraction there being Space Mountain, which currently is uh, Hyperspace Mountain out there. And uh, it's it's unique because it is the only Space Mountain that actually has looping on the inside. And it does have like a cool little launch uh, from the outside to get inside the, the normal Space Mountain ride building. Uh, it's not as thrilling as everyone thinks it's going to be. It does not launch that fast at all. Um, it's it's more like just a quick little launch and then you slow down and then you finally get in the attraction. So that kind of, that kind of bummed me out that I had these grand ideas of it after looking at pictures yeah, and video I, throughout I the years. Uh, but still, still thrilling. And I will just say, speaking on behalf of the hyperspace mountain aspect of it, uh, this was the best hyperspace mountain of the two I've done. Um, Disneyland's and, and Disneyland Paris's. Uh, it, with the looping aspects of it, it felt like you were actually in a real dogfight with X-Wings and TIE Fighters. It just it worked perfectly out there. I I know people do have an appreciation for Space Mountain Two out there, 
uh, in Paris, but this felt so right to me. Um, mm. I, it, it was it was so so well done. Um, but and another one that eventually I'm sure it'll go back to its normal theming, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing what it's like on a normal day. Uh, but I, I did mention too the Nautilus out front of it and the the nautilus is another walkthrough attraction so if you're keeping track at home that's like 10 walkthroughs at this point <laughs> because there are so many in this park and this was this was just cool i mean i i don't know i genuinely don't believe that we are actually in the nautilus but you have to walk in and you go down through a tunnel and walk across. So it gives you the perception that you really are walking into the Nautilus and, and then just encapsulated inside it. And it's detailed. It's, it's just beautifully, uh, beautifully made. Like it, you honestly feel like you're in the one in the movie when you're standing in there and, and the highlight of it is standing in uh, Captain Nemo's quarters, and they have uh, these windows that open and close. And uh, there's there's a giant sea creature out of one of them. I won't ruin it for those of you out there who are eventually going to see it, but it's it's so well done. Um, it's I I never thought I would get so much enjoyment out of a walk through attraction, but. It just it brought a smile into my face because I love Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. So to see it, to see it just, just have it represented in the perfect way, not making it an attraction with all the issues that come along with those submarines, it, it just felt so right doing it this way. And those were those were the highlights of Discoveryland. They had Buzz Lightyear and Star Tours, which same attractions just a mix of french and and english so nothing really to write home on that they had they had an autopia there but i just didn't have time to to jump on that uh so that's that's kind of my experience at that's disneyland cool. as a whole so yeah and they had a train i see that runs yeah, they around do. the park and yeah they do and this apparently though they only run one train at a time not multiple oh, wow so the train had ridiculous waits. I'm talking like an 80 minute wait for the train at one point on Sunday. That's ridiculous. It. Yeah, and but they do have uh, the Grand Canyon diorama in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, for it, it, not the not the primeval world part, but the the Grand Canyon diorama. Mm-hmm. So I was upset. I wanted to see it for that very reason, but I can't justify spending that much time waiting on the train. No, especially when you basically only have a day or so. Now, what was the event that you went there for? Because I saw some of the photos, and and there were a lot of unique characters. Oh, yeah, no. Fan days, it was, Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of, uh, I mean, I know they called the D23 Expo the ultimate fan event. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that is true for Disney as a company as a whole. But fan days for me was the ultimate Disney event for people who love uh, who love Disney ex- kind of Disney experience Disney characters Disney park experiences it's kind of a blend of that because there was, so it was a hard ticket after hours event that was sold with vacation packages very expensive uh, and just very very uh, they, they weren't people were saying that it wasn't selling well but this event was just insanely packed 
Um, and so I don't understand how they got that concept of it, but it happened at the studios park from, uh, from 8, 8 PM to 2 AM. So a nice solid six hour after, after hours event. But, uh, the, the main sell of it is that they were supposed to have over 90 Disney characters. And I think, uh, one of our, our friends, uh, friends of the Diz and one of my personal friends, Jeff, uh, from Mouse Steps, I think he counted over a hundred in total. Wow. Uh, hundred total characters that were there, uh, either in the, the parade that wrapped up the night where they all said goodbye or just meeting and greeting throughout the night. And so we're talking the rarest of the rarest characters in some circumstances. Like, yes, Roger Rabbit was there. You see him at Disneyland mm-hmm. every now and then. Except you never see him with Eddie Valiant. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Did uh, they have Jessica? They didn't have Jessica, oh. but uh, that's who knows. Maybe at the next one, um, you know, you see Marie out. She's not rare, but you never see her with the other two kittens. I know. I was shocked. Yeah, to see them. Yeah, um, and you don't see the characters from Atlantis. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. see the characters from Treasure Planet. We don't see the characters from Big Hero Six besides um, besides Baymax, and I didn't even see Baymax. I saw all the other characters <laughs> from Big Hero Six, with the exception, but uh, just just. So, so many. The Disney Afternoon characters. So Chip and Dale and the Rescue Rangers. That shocked me. Yeah, Yeah. I mean. And I I mean, I literally could keep, just sit here and list them off. Characters from uh, Saludos Amigos, uh, which that, and Three Caballeros, which just completely took me by surprise on that. Uh, The fact is that uh, one of the stage shows featured, um, featured, Cusco and Isma from from the Emperor's New Groove. Um, like we're talking, they tried to cover everything Disney with this in terms of the characters. So whether you saw them in the shows or you met them in person in the streets, there was just a vast representation. And uh, you know, obviously, with that comes a lot of long lines. And mm-hmm. I will say that there were people upset around that they didn't get to to meet nearly enough characters or any a lot of characters at all uh, maybe not more than a handful so I got it was to photograph meet- a lot but yeah. i didn't even see them all so it was meet and greets and then special shows yeah they had things. special and then- shows and parades so the big the main show of it was it was uh max live getting goofy with it which was like a it kind of the idea the premise set up was that there was a talent show happening and uh it was featuring max from a goofy movie goof troop uh but max was wearing his powerline costume from the film a goofy movie and it the show was bookended with two songs from a goofy movie uh stand out and then eye to eye which is just like as a fan of the goofy movie i mean that was that i was like eight or nine when that came out so that was a huge movie of my childhood so to see it brought to life on stage was just one of those moments that like i still get chills thinking about how lucky I was to experience that. But uh, this show was, Max was joined by uh, just, you know, all these random characters that popped up. So Nick and Judy Hopps came in from Zootopia. Uh, Stitch and Angel 
came in from <laughs> uh, from uh, I believe Angels from uh, Stitch Two, um, but I, I know I saw her in the cartoon as well, uh, the TV series. But they were there. Like I mentioned, the characters from The Emperor's New Groove popped in, and uh, it just and then the two of the three caballeros, uh, Jose and um, Jose Carioca and Panchito were there, but Donald couldn't be there uh, for this show, which was just outstanding. It was remarkable. I hope they bring it over to events over here um, because I can only imagine the the reaction. But the reason Donald couldn't be in that show is because they had a special parade for that night uh, that was Dance with the DuckTales. And so all the characters from DuckTales, for the most part, so Scrooge, Launchpad, Huey, Dewey, Louie, Donald, they all came out uh, on parade floats and led the audience in some dances uh, to an original song and and uh, showed them new dance moves and everyone was dancing in the streets and it was it was a nice blend of a parade and a dance party all together just really really well done the fact that they put that much effort in creating this new original music for this inaugural event that if it was a failure might have only been one night but pretty pretty neat and then the last show um that is part of the main draw of this event is that uh this was the first appearance of hortensia oswald the lucky rabbit's girlfriend uh in a in a park and wow she was she was at this event and part of it was a show um uh, uh, that focused all around Hortensia making making her big debut. So it was an Oswald Hortensia show, and That's it amazing. was yeah, it was it was like kind of a blend of um, of the Newsboys out in California adventure mixed with with Oswald and Hortensia. So it was it was a such a neat little show and we have all the shows up on our Diz YouTube channel uh, youtube.com slash WDW info so please go out and watch those shows and, and check them out if you haven't yet because they really are neat and they, and they did a couple panels throughout the night at Fan Days too they had like one on Duffy they had one on uh, on with Imagineering about Disneyland Paris and they mentioned some of the changes coming to the studios and and uh, and other uh, little nitbits about uh, Disneyland Park too. So I didn't I didn't take the time to attend those uh, just because there was so much happening to see that I couldn't stop for that long. But wow. can can you imagine if they had an event like that either at Walt Disney World yeah. or Disneyland? It's people the, would go nuts. The closest thing to that I've ever been a part of with it is probably the villains. Uh, event mm-hmm. that we had at Hollywood Studios a couple of years back, the hard ticket one, where mm-hmm. characters were just everywhere, the lines were insane. But this event was like that times ten in terms of the scope. Uh, it, if it happened in Walt Disney World or Disneyland, people would lose their freaking minds. Yeah, um, it, it just <laughs> I I don't I don't know where they would put it together. Um, it, it felt like it worked really well in studios, which we'll talk about briefly here because there's not much good to say about the studios. 
Um, it felt good in that park because there wasn't a whole lot happening there. But at our parks, it would be, it would be very, uh, it would have to be very spread apart and very stressful to get around to do one of these. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I will say, if I, I said it right after the event was over, I know it costs a lot of money to go to that event. But if they do one again in the future, I, I will be saving up and spending my own money to go on it. I, wow! I saw that much. Of, without a, paying for it, I could see the value in it and the unique experiences that it offered. What a big endorsement! That's cool. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. Well, well, you mentioned Walt Disney Studio Park, and this opened in March sixteenth, nineteen, um, two thousand and two. March sixteenth, two thousand and two. It is themed to a working film studio, similar to Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando. When it opened, most of its attractions were simply copies from Disney parks in California, Florida, and Tokyo, with the exception of the original Lights, Motor, Action stunt show, later exported to Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, The park was heavily criticized for its lack of attractions and theming, and was considered a half-day park at best. In 2007, Toon Studio opened and is themed as the Toon Backlot, where the animated characters work on their films. In 2010, Toy Story Playland opened. Um, The production areas, that's what they call their realms, their lands, are Front Lot, Toon Studio, um, Toy Story Playland, Production Courtyard, and the Back Lot. So, Craig, this, this, I think this is a very, very different park from uh, <laughs> Disneyland Park. So yeah. It's... What was that like? It's a mess um, as a general <laughs> rule, uh, and I say that I enjoyed my time there, um, but it's it, you can tell that there wasn't a lot of thought and effort put into this park. Uh, it seems cool from the outside. They still have the Earful Tower there that announces the name of Walt Disney Studios, and and it seems like it's going to be unique right away because you walk you walk in through the park and then. You're in this big courtyard, and then that leads into this next this building that's an uh, indoor uh, mixture of shopping and dining that is like kind of playful, cartoonish California. Uh, you know, showing like landmarks like the Brown Derby and that kind of idea, like tiki theming on the inside too. So it, it varies a lot of Southern California in this big building. And then you get outside of it, you're met with the partner statue, which is in this park, not Disneyland Park. And then you just look around, and it's not very good. It's not pretty. Um, it's it just there. There are nice touches to it. So the one building has uh, the sorcerer's hat, so it kind of feels like you're on the studio's lot in a way, but but not. And then it's just. It's a mishmash of attractions, so uh, a lot of a lot of kind of copy attractions here and there. Like they have the magic, the Aladdin's uh, flying carpets that we have in the Magic Kingdom. They have it in this park. Their Toy Story Land, I believe, is all the same as the one in Hong Kong. Uh, that's where the one is in Toy Story. Er, Toy Story Land is right in Asia. Yeah. Yeah, there's one there. They are building one in, in Tokyo and Shanghai. They're they're yeah. opening. Basically, it's pretty much the same 
Toy Story Playland yeah. and all the Asian parts. Yeah, like this this is the one that has like the the parachute drop. It has the slinky dog that just goes in a circle. It has the RC racer that just goes back and forth uh, up and down a hill. It, it like it had that just so off the shelf. It had Tower of Terror, which is uh, the same same building uh, layout as the the one in Disneyland was. So mm-hmm. at least it's a nice throwback to that. They have uh, Playhouse or uh, Disney Junior live there but i did not get a chance to see i'm sure it would have been great um rock and roller coaster was out there which uh same ride track and everything is the one in hollywood studios just uh just different the story is a little bit different uh to that attraction it's not the the entire okay well you're gonna get backstage passes and the the we're going to put you in a limo and you just have to meet it out in the alley. It's not that it's a little bit more straightforward. I guess I was told that that's it, that whole concept didn't really resonate of the backstage passes and going to the Aerosmith concert didn't really resonate with European audiences. So they just tweaked it a little bit. Um, and you know, then lights motor action, which we got way too long uh, as part of the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. Uh, it stayed around way too long at Disney's Hollywood Studios, but I didn't experience that because uh, I was told that show lasts about an hour and a half. Because, oh, my goodness. Yeah, unlike ours in uh, at Hollywood Studios while we had it, this one uh, tries to translate everything in French and in English. So basically you have to sit through double the show in terms of all the talking points. And I decided that just wasn't going to happen for me. <laughs> so it really is a mishmash of a park. But I want to talk about the highlights over here. And um, as well as some of the lowlights, but still highlights. And uh, kind of going around, one of the big things uh, when you first enter into the park on the right is the Animagic Theater, which is home to Mickey and the Magician. And... This show is rumored to be coming to Walt Disney World, and if it does, we are all so lucky uh, because this show was just was just astounding. Um, it's the, the Mickey is the apprentice to a magician, and uh, it's as night falls, he has so much time that he has to has to clean his uh his master's area um but then of course there is magic in the air as well too and and a lot of the magic of disney characters comes in to help mickey in through the night and so there's appearances by um uh, by uh, the fairy godmother and and a little bit of an illusion with Cinderella's dress in that uh there's a random appearance of Rafiki from the Lion King, but done in the Broadway style. And all of that section is done in the Broadway style, which is, if you've seen the Lion King on Broadway, you know how awesome that is. So is this a live show? It is a live show in, a, oh, in an okay. enclosed theater. Yeah, and um, it's it all focuses on the Disney movies, uh, but with illusions blended in. So uh, this was where they debuted, and I did research on it. I wasn't sure when I said it on the Dream Show. I'm sure of it now. You know, in um, in the Frozen show at the Hyperion, the effect of Elsa changing from her one costume to another? Right. 
this is this is uh, the first show that they did that in. So kind oh, of okay. practical illusions in this way. Um, I'm sure there there are things done with animatronics and pre-placed uh, effects, but there's a lot of practical effects taking place in the show. So it's like it's watching a magic show filled with Disney characters. It it hmm. it is just an amazing show. Uh, it's and it was a blend of English and French. So it really you could understand it. Uh, I think you could have still understood the story if it was only in French. I think the story was so straightforward and and so magical that you could have grasped it. Uh, but you know, it's always helpful having the translation. But just it, probably the one thing I would say in this park that if you only went to to the studios and this is all you did, you would walk away having a great day. Um, oh wow it, it was that good mm-hmm. uh they also had crush's coaster there which was um which is a nice cute little indoor uh spinning roller coaster so like a wild mouse style but with the spinning car so think of our uh primeval whirl out in oh, okay out in uh, animal kingdom but but much better trust me much much better in this case um you're you're sitting on turtle shells and you're sitting front to back instead of the weird four people in a semicircle style. So it's it's it just it's nice and dark inside, but makes you feel like you're in the ocean. There's moments where you feel like you're going through the EAC. There's the Finding Nemo music and characters. Just uh, a really simple concept uh, that's just done very well with that Disney style. So. Uh, that was a pleasant surprise. Uh, of course, uh, one of the big highlights of this park for anyone who gets the chance to do it is uh, Ratatouille, which we'll soon soon be able to do here at uh, at Walt Disney World in the France Pavilion at Epcot. And uh, if you're unfamiliar of it, uh, the Ratatouille ride is a trackless system where you're riding along in mice. Uh, it's kind of through the story of Ratatouille, but not not exactly. There are moments that are are similar, and it is a it's a screen based ride. Something that I wasn't aware of. I, I I had never seen anything on it before, besides knowing that it existed and it was trackless. So I was surprised by that. But it's it's a blend of giant physical props that make you feel like you're mouse sized, um, but also then all these screens throughout that really help weave the story together and some great special effects but the coolest aspect of it is it it ends with the kind of the concept of well your story in the restaurant hasn't ended there and you could continue it by going to the restaurant right next door that you can see in through the glass windows is Shea Remy which we talked about on the show as well too where uh, it's it is a restaurant that makes you feel like you're the size of a mouse and is just intricately themed, um, kind of like the the end restaurant in Ratatouille that that um, that Remy has opened up. So, just the whole area back here that's all surrounded with Shea Remy and Ratatouille, the gift store that's all surrounded here, is just absolutely stunning. Um, if if this was all our French Pavilion was in the world showcase <laughs> it would be it would still be perfect um it's that pretty it just just really remarkable 
Uh, oh, that's wonderful. I'm looking forward to having it at Epcot. Yeah, but but trust me, I think the blend of French and English here is just is the right way to see it. But mm-hmm. I think many many audiences will be happy that they get a taste of it out there. Um, and then the last two things really that I want to talk about in the studios. The one is just I'm mentioning it out of how terrible it is, and that's the Armageddon special effects show. <laughs> I'm uh, surprised it is still there. <laughs> it's It won't be, and that's why I had to do it. This was one of the things that will be going away uh, that we'll talk about in just a second here, but uh, it's, it's on its last legs. And in terms of special effects show, uh, it's right up there with what Twister was at Universal Studios mm-hmm. Florida in terms of bad. I mean, just just terrible um it's i love the movie armageddon and i still hated every second of this uh with the most morbid part being that the pre-show is hosted by michael clark duncan from the movie who passed away at this point years and years ago um and you could tell that they wanted to put this probably in hollywood studios and decided not to because he's speaking in english and it's just dubbed in french so there's no reason why they would have had him do this in English to just dub it later if it wasn't supposed to go somewhere else at some point. And I'm sure someone out there knows the history behind it and and where it was supposed to be and why it didn't happen. I'm sure it didn't happen because it's awful. But it, if you get there before it closes down, that is something you have to see. And the last, the last thing, as a as a true fan of uh, old Hollywood studios and many nice memories, they do have a tram tour, a very shortened tram tour, which I, is. Yeah, uh, I was wondering what could they possibly show on this? Well, besides Catastrophe Canyon, and that is the main draw of it. So you board the tram vehicle. Uh, you do go past some props, and right now one of the props there is one of the spaceships from Horizons. So that's a neat little thing uh, that connects back to home. But basically, yeah, you drive out, and you the, the tour is hosted by a French actress. And then, um, uh, oh my gosh, why can't I think of his name? The, uh, the voice of Scar. Oh, Jeremy Irons? Jeremy Irons, thank you. Uh, they're the two hosts of of the attraction, and you drive out to Catastrophe Canyon, and it's just like it was at Hollywood Studios, and then you drive on back, and you think like, okay, well, that was cool. Just got the highlight with that. But then you pass the load station, and you drive past a whole bunch of vehicles used in movies, so you, you get that. And then you drive through this weird London back stage set that looked like it was probably impressive at one point in time uh but then you basically park in there and there's a big fireball that shoots out in the middle and then you just pull away and i'm not doing a bad job of describing it that's literally all that happens why is there a fireball no idea it's like an I don't know if it was like an earthquake or some other natural disaster happened in in London that caused this to happen, but it it just it made no sense. It was like they realized there wasn't enough with just Catastrophe Canyon, so they're like, we're going to add one more special effect, and they Mm. chose this. So you drive all the way out there to see this, 
and then you just circle around and go back, and then it's over. Was it like the Blitzkrieg or something for yeah, film? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, not even that, because it's like modern day London. Oh, it is oh, so okay. confusing. <laughs> huh. um, but that's that's the theme of this park as a general, just confusing. Yeah. So yeah, uh, this but is luckily. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I mean, they built this because they were under a basically contractual obligation to have a second theme park in Dubai. And this is when, because of overbuilding, they built too many hotels for the park because rather than people staying at Disneyland Paris, it ended up, they just took the train out and then went back. Yeah. into the city and they didn't need all the hotels so that was part of the crushing debt that you know we've heard so much about over the years so when they finally said okay they have got to build this park it was around the same time as Disney's California Adventure where Michael Eisner was worried about budget and money and um, so yeah this was built even more cheaply than Disney's California Adventure yeah. It, it's so, a mess, uh, but mm-hmm. they are going to fix it. Yes. On February 27, 2018, Bob Iger announced that the Walt Disney Company will invest 2 billion euros into the Disneyland Paris Resort. Um, the Walt Disney Studio Park will be expanded with three new areas based upon the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Frozen, and Star Wars. In addition to the three new areas, the expansion includes a new lake, which will be the center for ent- entertainment experiences and will also connect each of the new park areas and the first phase of the expansion will be completed in 2021 so they they have plenty of room there Mm -hmm. so they they just needed the right ideas and with with those three properties i think i think it will instantly make for a very a very uh, well-rounded park compared yeah. to what it is right now. Yeah, I'm wondering if the the Marvel area and the Frozen area will be similar to what they're going to be building in Hong Kong. I would Disneyland. imagine. Yeah. And I assume the Star Wars area will be similar to what we're getting yeah. here. I would in- say probably a more condensed version of that, mm-hmm. but uh, probably similar nonetheless. So so did you... Did you um, so what were your takeaways from your experience in, in Disneyland Paris? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, my biggest takeaway is just uh, as my first time leaving outside of the domestic parks, it was just that uh, it, it was nice to see that Disney still retained its, its Disney self in a different area. And I, I know that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's, you do, at least from my perspective, like I've seen the photos of all the, the international parks, but I never truly understood. Like if I step into it and I'm, am I going to feel that same Disney magic that runs through the parks here? And the answer was an astounding yes. And like I said, for, for Disneyland park, even more. Um, it's definitely up there with my favorite parks. Uh, but I, it just, as a, the resort as a whole was just, was just very nice. Uh, very, very well done. Um, it's, it's the entire resort is connected, uh, by a 
Disney Village, which is their downtown Disney. It's awful. It's literally just worth walking through and not stopping at anything in there. Um, but it's it is it's it, it's just that's connecting uh, the two parks to the hotel area, which, as you said, there's um, there's a lot of hotels there. There's I believe one, two, three, four, five. Five hotels mm-hmm. on the one side of Disney Village, and then uh, a sixth one with Disneyland Hotel being right beside Disneyland Park, as I mentioned. But uh, it's it's so compact, it's so tight, it's nice walking everywhere around here, just kind of like Disneyland. Uh, but instead of having all the city landscapes build up around you and taking you out of the magic, you're literally just in a field in the middle of France. Uh, so that's, it, it, you never feel the outside world invade in. And that's, that's something special that it really is. And, uh, just, I, I took a car from the airport to get there. I didn't take the train that goes directly there and has a station at Disneyland to drop you off at. Uh, so I got to see a lot of the countryside. And the fact is to get from the airport to the park, you're driving through little towns like that you would expect to see mm-hmm. in lights motor action um like it, it felt so authentic and unique so um it just just a special little park and i i really do i i hope that everything is completely revitalized with the studios and and this place becomes even more of a destination i will say the people who are fans of of these parks they they love this place and i I completely understand why now. It, it it's just it, it's yeah. a place well, you I'm have to go. I'm looking forward to that someday. It really is. F- finish my clean sweep of all the parks. Well, you know, after after that great episode, it, it's now time to really bring it home with the, this day in Disney history quiz for the week of June 17th. We are delighted not only to have back our champion from last week, well, and he's my co-host and producer, so he has to be here anyway, Craig <laughs> Williams, and, but also we're welcoming back uh, Luella from last week. Luella Loriola, did I get that yes. right? Yes. Yes, Yay. you did, you know, and it's, it's a I, pleasure to be back. Thank it, you. It is, it is a pleasure to have you. So I know last week, Luella, you told us a little about how you became a part of the Diz. You know, we're, we're colleagues on, uh, as part of the West Coast team of the Diz. But uh, tell us a little about how did your Disney fandom start? Because people who follow you, you, you are at every Disneyland event. Oh, (laughs) every single one of them. So how did your Disney fandom start? It actually started pretty young. Uh, My parents immigrated from the Philippines when I was very young, and it was one of their dreams to go to Disneyland. So I have pictures of me as a baby, a really young baby with my mom and dad dressed very nice. So I think back in the 70s, they still continued to dress pretty dapper. My mom's in heels and my dad's in a suit, and I'm dressed in very nice Sunday best clothes. And I think that's where it started. But when you're from Southern California and you're just miles away from Disneyland, it really is a part of your culture. So after every school year, we go to Disneyland as a celebration. Our classes did. I've done that from elementary all the way to 
the when I graduated senior year. And then when you graduate senior year and you're going through working to college, you work at Disneyland. So it's just really been ingrained. It's I've really been raised with it. And so that's kind of how it started. And I, I do think, and, and Craig, you might correct me if I'm wrong, I do think that's one of the big differences between Disneyland and Walt Disney World, where Disneyland became a part of yes. Southern California culture and California culture as part of the identity for Native Californians. I'm not sure if Walt Disney World ever became that no. for Orlando and Florida. No, it, it hasn't. And honestly, I feel like the the Orlando locals that I know that visit the parks the most often are usually the ones who who actually relocated to Orlando. And a, a lot of the people that are from around here just they're here for different reasons they're not they mm-hmm. they don't they don't just visit like like people in california do i i don't know if it's because of the price or or what but it just it, it seems like a, a general lack of interest like oh yeah it's there so i might go to it once every couple of years but that's about it and I, it's it's a little mind-boggling but yeah it's it's a very strange mm-hmm. very strange dynamic yeah, and I, I think, and voila, what do you think? I think that maybe how, because it became such a part of Southern California and California culture that that's why one of the reasons the sense of ownership yes, is there. I, I- I'd have to say, because a lot of us who go to the park often and have annual passes, we've been going for years since we were children, since as long as I can remember. I can't even pinpoint when my first time I went to the park was, because we were going every single year. And then when you start, everyone that I went to school with, we all got a summer job there. It was much easier back then to get a job. Now it's much more difficult, but it was something we did. We we went to the park every year at the celebration uh, at the end of the school year, and then as soon as we were old enough, we got a job working there. <laughs> so yeah. you just feel like you own it. You feel very connected with it. And even if something is to change for the better, you can see kind of the uproar over it. But oh, I'm all yes. about improving and being better because I've been blessed to see overseas parks. And I stand by, if you let the Imagineers do what they do best, true magic can happen and so oh. when i've gone to hong kong disneyland i'm like all right mystic manor needs to come here you know so, <laughs> so oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not abreast to like i'm not against change but i do think certain things should honor you know walt disney you know mm-hmm. so i'm i'm for that too well, it sounds like you, you're just going to be all set here for the, for this week's <laughs> Disney okay. trivia. And now, for our listeners, uh, just a reminder of the rules for those of you who are playing our, our home version of this game. You will receive three points for a correct answer if you choose not to hear the multiple choice options. Two points if uh, you do hear the multiple choice options and you you receive and you guess to find you the correct answer. Uh, if you request to have an incorrect answer removed, uh, you will receive one point for the correct answer. And if your opponent does get an answer incorrectly, you can steal the question and receive one point for the incorrect answer. For the correct answer, I should say. Um, and also, after last week, I have to warn you, I do have tiebreakers. 
I have tiebreaker questions this time, oh, but you go. will need hey. like you will need paper and pencil. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm bored. But uh, because we came really close to a tie, we've come, we've had ties before, and uh, so and I thought, well, you know, I, I, I need to have a tiebreaker for those events. So I, I made sure I had them this time around. Okay, so so Luella, since you are our guest on Connecting with Walt, would you like to receive the first question or pass it to Craig? I'm going to receive it. I will. I'll just go start off and jump into the cold water. Well, you know, it 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 served you well last time too. So, all right, for June 17th, fireworks, dancing, and parachuting skydivers welcomed the opening of this attraction at the Disneyland Resort on June 17th, 2008. Fireworks, June seventeenth, two thousand eight. Let me think. Um, let's go with multiple choice because I know I didn't go to the park at that time. I had just had my second baby. <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, you mean you didn't? You didn't um, pack them up in that carrier? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, is it A, Finding Nemo Submarine Voyage at Disneyland? B, Mickey's Fun Wheel at Disney's California Adventure? The Summer Nightastic Promotion highlighting the return of Fantasmic and an updated Disney's Electrical Parade? Or D, Toy Story Midway Mania? Mm -hmm. June 17th, 2008. Oh, gosh. I want to say that Toy Story was getting pretty big. And see, I had just had my baby, <laughs> and, uh, um, but I was still kind of following things. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Toy Story Midway Mania because I remember with Finding Nemo, that was earlier. Because my eldest son rode that. I'm going to go with Toy Story Midway Mania. Yeah, the submarine voyage, Finding Nemo submarine voyage opened in 2007. So that is correct. And yes, it is D, Toy Story Midway Mania. Fireworks, dancing, and parachuting skydivers. Welcome Toy Story Midway Mania to Disney's California Adventure at the attraction's official grand opening on Paradise Pier. The interactive attraction opens after three years of design and construction. The same Toy Story attraction opened at Walt Disney World's Disney's Hollywood Studios the previous May. Yes, okay. Yeah, because I remember being excited about that, but not being able to go. <laughs> okay. Okay. And the perpetual 40-minute line, no matter what time of the day, no yes. matter what day it is. It's always a 40-minute wait. So. All right. Excellent. Well, two points right off the bat there again. Okay, Craig, over to you. Okay. On June 18th, 1983, the Disneyland Parade, Flights of Fantasy, debuted in celebration of this event. I am going to go with multiple choice. Right. Is it A, Donald Duck's 50th birthday? B, the opening of New Fantasyland? C, Magic Journeys, showing on the Tomorrowland Outdoor Space Stage After Dark? D, the launch of the Disney Channel? 
Um, I am going to take a wild guess on this one, and I don't. I I I think that was right around the time Disney Channel came out, but I feel like they wouldn't throw a full parade to celebrate that. But the one thing I know for certain, after uh, talking about our I our the Disneyland of our dreams is that I know that Fantasyland did open up as new Fantasyland in 83. And that seems like something worth celebrating. So I'm going to go with new Fantasyland. Final answer. Yes. You are correct. The Disneyland Parade Flights of Fantasy debut, which celebrates the opening of the new Fantasyland. Excellent. Two points. Yeah. So... Okay, June nineteenth for Luella. June nineteenth mm-hmm. sounds Where? like a good day. It, it was. It's what? It's my mom's birthday on June nineteenth. Ah, oh, yeah. See, well, I said know, it was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, she and you know she might know the answer to this question. You'll have to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> Where did Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame hold its world premiere on June nineteenth, nineteen ninety six? Ooh. I'm going to ask for um, a multiple choice. All righty. And I'm, I'm right away. I'm just going to apologize to our French speaking listeners. Okay. Is it A, Paris, France at the Parc de la Villette on a giant inflatable screen? B, New Orleans, Louisiana in the Superdome? C, Paris, France outside the Notre Dame Cathedral on a giant inflatable screen? D, New Orleans, Louisiana, outside St. Louis Cathedral on a giant inflatable screen in Jackson Square. Hmm. You know, uh, I would think because it's such an iconic location and it's really about that Notre Dame Cathedral, I'm going to take a guess and say C in Paris in front of the Notre Dame. Okay. Final answer? Final answer. That is incorrect, and it makes perfect sense, though. It should have. Okay, (laughs) it should. It absolutely should have. Uh, But they probably the French probably thought it'd be too bourgeois. That's (laughs) true. That could be true. Yes. (laughs) Craig, over to you. Where did Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame hold its world premiere on June nineteenth, nineteen ninety six? Was it in Paris, France, uh, at the Parc de la Villette, or however it's pronounced, on a giant inflatable screen? Uh, New Orleans, Louisiana in the Superdome or New Orleans, Louisiana outside St. Louis Cathedral on a giant inflatable screen? Going, I'm going to say the Paris one in the place you can't pronounce only because I don't (laughs) think you would have included it if you knew that you were going to butcher the name. (laughs) Is that the final answer? Yeah. Okay. Oh, Craig, I butcher names all the time. (laughs) That is incorrect. Believe it or not, Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame has its world premiere at the Superdome in New Orleans, utilizing six enormous screens and a parade through the French Quarter. The film will have its general release two days later. (laughs) Corey for that one. I know, really. 
So, but I, I would have thought it would have been in France. Uh, yeah, so not even in France. Not even in France. No, I don't know if the French would have really embraced it. Uh, Very true. But yeah, they, 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 yeah, true. they perhaps they would not have liked the um, the 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 I don't know the the dramatic license that Disney took with the book. The Germans would have loved it. <laughs> they did love it, actually. <laughs> I've seen the stage version. It's wonderful. But, all right. Uh, so, well, but we're still tied two to two. And so, Luella, uh, no, it's Craig. Mike. Craig. Your yeah. turn. That's right. Okay. On June 20th, 2008, 8.9 million viewers tuned into the Disney Channel to watch the debut of this program. Okay. Multiple choice. <laughs> Is it A, The Sweet Life on Deck, which was a sequel to The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody? B, Wizards on Deck with Hannah Montana. What is up with those deck stuff? C, Jonas, or D, Camp Rock? Um, oh, gosh. Where's Nancy at when you need her? Um, <laughs> she said Disney Channel expert. Um I have no idea. I'm going to take one away. All right. Let's take away the Wizards on Deck with Hannah Montana. Mm. Okay. So is it The Sweet Life on Deck, Jonas, or Camp Rock? I I don't think it was just The Sweet Life on Deck. I can't imagine. How many people did you say watched it? 8.9 8.9 million viewers. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that many people tuning in for that. Um, oh, Zach and Cody, they were charmers in their day. They were, but I feel... <laughs> I honest, I know the one girl from American Idol was in Camp Rock. I don't remember who else was. I, I never watched it, I'll be completely honest. And I never will watch it. Um, <laughs> but I know that was kind of right at the height of the Jonas Brothers success so i'm gonna go with c jonas okay oh c jonas okay yeah. i thought you were heading for camp rock okay are they um, in camp rock so I, I i i'm only giving you the options here so you're going with c jonas sure okay final answer final answer okay that is incorrect it was camp rock Wait, so because well, you didn't give Luella a chance to answer that. Oh my goodness, I'm terrible. That's give her, terrible. Give her the point, anyways. I'm guessing I will. I always do it. that when I mess it up. So yeah, but it's but it starred the Jonas Brothers and Demi Lovato. I didn't so, know that. I yeah. knew Demi Lovato was in it, but I didn't know about the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> yeah. So would you have known that, Luella? I probably would have just guessed, but. Um, surprisingly, I'm, I might have watched that. Oh, <laughs> I might okay. be one of those 8.9 million. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to say then that you would have gotten that anyway, so you get get a point for that. Yes, the film centers on a teen girl who desperately wants to spend her summer at a prestigious rock and roll camp. So. Yes, I've seen it. Awesome. <laughs> and I actually like it. <laughs> I, I've never seen it. I assume since it was summer camp, there were ample opportunities for the Jonas's to run around shirtless in swimming trunks. So, um, but anyway. Okay. Well, Luella, so you're ahead now with three points. And, uh, and now it's your turn. So for June 21st, 
The Walt Disney Studio releases this feature film on June 21st, 1985, as an unofficial sequel to the MGM musical The Wizard of Oz. What is the name of this film? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Gosh, you know, I, I remember that movie, and it starred that um, girl that was... Yes, this, yeah, she was in um, Waterboy. <laughs> yes. And the craft. Um, but I had gosh, no idea she was in anything after this gosh, film. I, I yeah, want to just yeah. be sure about the title. Gosh, I want to say it's Return to Oz. But you know what? Let's just get that multiple choice because I can't remember the title. But I do remember this movie. Okay. Just- Is it A, Rainbow Road to Oz, B, Return to Oz, what? C, Oz the Great and Powerful, D, The Muppets Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I want to say it's entitled Return to Oz, starring Farouz, that, what was her name? But she's Farusa very good. Farouza Balk or something like yes. that? I don't, yeah, yeah. She's, she's very good. Final answer? Final answer. You are correct. It yeah, is. Should have just went for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to love that, Craig. Yeah. Um, this is me yeah. thoroughly. <laughs> Disney's live-action feature film, Return to Oz, is released in U.S. theaters. The film's plot is a combination of L. Frank Baum's novels, Ozma of Oz and The Marvelous Land of Oz, which are written as sequels to his classic novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Return to Oz is an unofficial sequel, as Disney has made the film without the involvement of MGM, the studio responsible for the original 1939 film. The film will receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Visual effects there were a couple of scenes in here i found very disturbing that dorothy getting dorothy getting shock treatment (laughs) first of all and um yeah spoiler alert kids and then the scene where the witch uh, switches heads she has the room full of heads i remember that scene and i saw this in the movie theater when Uh i was a little girl and that freaked me out I thought it was a really good film. Uh, I I thought the depiction of Dorothy and the characters very faithful to the original illustrations of the bomb novels, and yeah. uh, and um, I liked it. It did not do well at the box office, and I remember in the Main Street Electrical Parade they actually had a Return to Oz float ah. in it for this because they used to have floats uh, that that were temporary. That would usually be in conjunction with a film. So, and they had a return to Oz float. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So, anyway, all right. Okay. Well, Loella, you have pulled way ahead here. So, um, five to, to Craig's two. Okay. So, but Craig, here you go. The, you can jump in and guess this one. Uh, for June twenty second, six Disney class six classic Disney tunes are chosen as part of the American Film Institute's top one hundred songs, broadcast on CBS TV on June twenty second, two thousand and four. AFI's one hundred years, one hundred songs, and hosted by John Travolta. Which of these Disney songs was not chosen for the list? Uh, um, I, so I have to take multiple choice? Well, 
I I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> you do have <laughs> so oh so let me give these to you. Is it A Baby Mine from Dumbo? B Hakuna Matata from The Lion King? C Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White? And D Supercalifragilistic Expialidocious from Mary Poppins. Um, I know some of the songs that are on, I I do know some of the songs that are on this list, especially the Disney ones, just because I started recently listening to a new podcast that's going through the AFI top 100 movies and talking about them. So I've been looking at AFI lists a lot lately. Um, I'm, I'm, I know I'm behind, but I'm still going to take away one just in case it's the one i'm okay messed up on okay um i'm gonna remove hakuna matata from the lion king oh okay that that makes it easier um baby mine isn't on there that is correct it is baby mine Okay, now, what I had intended to do was, since it was a multiple, you had to hear the multiple choice. If you'd gotten it, that would have been two points. But for an X, another point to have brought it up to three, can you name another song? Uh, when You Wish Upon a Star. That is correct. So I will give you two points for that one. Um, when You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio was number seven. Someday My Prince Will Come from Snow White was number 19. Supercalifragilistic Expialidocious from Mary Poppins is at number 36. Zippity Doodah from Song of the South was number 47. Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast was number 62. And Hakuna Matata from The Lion King just squeaked in at number 99. Yeah, if you, if you would have left that in there and took out Super Califragilist, I probably would have had to think a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. But once you took away that, it was simple. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. So anyway, well, that brings you up to four. Okay, so it's four to five, so you're closing in here. Okay. And but Luella, the last last one goes to you. All right. So Singer, dancer, actor, and game show host John Davidson made his film debut in this Disney film on June 23rd, 1967. Hmm. I don't know that one. So let's go with multiple choice. Is it A, the one and only genuine original family band? B, the happiest millionaire? C, the gnome mobile? Or D, the horse in the gray flannel suit. Oh, gosh, I have no idea. So why don't we take one away? All righty. Let's take away the gnome mobile. I'm going to take an, I'm just going to guess and say A. Was that family? The one and only genuine original family band. Yes. Okay. Final that, answer. That is incorrect. That was <laughs> no actually idea. his second Disney film ah, in 1968. Okay. So, Craig, over to you for one point, and you will end up tying this if you get it correct. 
is that what it was John Davidson's film debut in this Disney film, The Happiest Millionaire or The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit? Mm, well, my guess was going to be The Family Band. So that didn't really help things. Um, I feel like I, I... I'm sorry, I'm just racking my brain right now. I'm trying to remember back to any of our Treasures from the Disney Vault episodes, thinking if we talked about it, but that's all just blurring together. <laughs> um, I'm going to go D, the horse in the gray flannel suit. Okay, final answer. Yeah. Okay, we actually did talk about this, and it is B, The Happiest no. Millionaire, starring Fred McMurray, Greer Garson, Tommy Steele, who's apparently Britain's first pop idol, and John Davidson in his film debut opens in Hollywood, California. It's based upon the true story of Philadelphia millionaire Anthony J. Drexel Biddle. It is the last live-action feature film that Walt Disney saw completed before his passing in December 1966. Oh, that's what I get so, for paying attention to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Luella, that means you win this round of our history quiz. Woohoo! Yeah, congratulations! <laughs> Very good. It will, it will, these, these were tough, but, but that means now it's tied. So you, you have to come back next week so we can have this tie broken. I think I'll take your offer. Excellent. So we will see you back next week on Connecting with Walt. Well, Craig, thank you for sharing your travels with us and letting us travel vicariously through you. And over the summer, we will bring you a few more travel-themed episodes to accompany all of you on your travels, whether you're journeying to the far corners of the globe or to your local park, neighborhood park. Um, We wanted to remind you about some listener participation opportunities that are coming up. So uh, Craig's been telling you about submitting questions for our June 29th show. Craig, did you want to run through that one one more time? Yep. Uh, just as a reminder, we have our thread on Facebook that is still out there and active. And uh, just go ahead and leave a comment there. Do not email us. Do not tweet at us. Don't write it on the boards. It has to be on that Facebook chain, and uh, just as another reminder, said it a couple times, but want to make sure that it, it's clear that uh, we we won't be answering questions that are broad about what do we think Walt would think about this or that. Uh, we we don't know, and it's it, we can't speculate about it over and over again. So I don't mean to sound negative. It's just we can't answer those questions. No one knows what Walt would think about anything. So uh, that's we're, we're avoiding those. And uh, also, we enjoy a lot of the suggestions about uh, topics. So when uh, just and I'm not picking out anyone in particular i'm just making it up off the top of my head but when someone says something like i can you talk about pleasure island um that's what we would consider a show suggestion 
not a, a question uh, because that would take time and a lot of effort and a lot of history to go through to just talk about Pleasure Island a little bit. So we need specific questions <laughs> that we can answer in there uh, to, to make it entertaining for you. And so there's still, I, I know there's plenty of questions out there all the time. It's just, we need you to think of the right ones. And, uh, and yeah, so please, if you, if you have anything you think might be great and you want us to talk about it on air, head, head to Facebook slash facebook.com slash disunplugged and uh, find Wait, that thread. And and we've been teasing your, you for a while that we are looking for contestants to challenge Craig in our This Week in Disney History quiz. So, uh, Craig, I think um, the, your, the opportunity is coming, isn't it? Yep. Uh, we... On Twitter, you it's going to be pinned on our feed, but uh, so that means it'll be on the top, especially when you look at it like uh, on our profile page or on desktop. But uh, we're gonna have a nice little tweet out there that uh, is a that we just ask that you you retweet that for us and make sure that you're also following us on Twitter as well too at Connecting Walt, and that will automatically enter you in for a chance to become the contestant for our This Week in Disney History quiz. So uh, after we decide to cut it off, we'll then randomly select one person from that to, to challenge me. So it's really just going to be as simple as that. When when you see that tweet, um, there, when you take the time to search from it, because it should be out as of this being recorded at this point, uh, or out as of this being released, uh, so... When you see it, just retweet it. Make sure you're following us. And it's as simple as that. We might choose you to challenge me. And then we'll just have to go through the messy details of setting up the time. (laughs) So I wanted to also let you know, if you're in Southern California on June 20th, you might want to check out an event hosted by the Academy of Arts and Sciences. Of course, they bring us the Oscars every year. This is called the Sherman Brothers, a Hollywood songbook with legendary songwriter Richard Sherman in person. We will have a link to this event in our show notes. However, you're going to see that the tickets are sold out. Uh, But there is information about how you might be able to get in through standing room, by standby, I should say. And uh, once you hear what's involved in this, you might want to try to get in a standby. This celebration is going to include clips from the Sherman Brothers films and musical performances by Dick Van Dyke, Haley Mills, Richard Allen, Tommy Emmanuel, Jordan Fisher, Anthony Gonzalez, Kenny Loggins, Maude Maggart, Leanne Rimes, Kiala Settle, I don't know who that is, and Michael Leon Woolley. Um, They're going to have a number of featured speakers, including composer John Debney, Oscar-winning director Pete Docter, actress Karen Dotris, who, of course, was Jane Banks, uh, Oscar winner winning composer Michael Giacchino, film critic Leonard Malton, animator Floyd Norman, who's on this show, um, actor B.J. Novak. Uh, think of, um, uh, oh gosh, I've, he portrayed Saving Mr. Blanks, yep. 
Saving Mr. Writer, Banks director Bob Peterson, Oscar winner, office. producer Jonas Rivera, writer, producers Gregory V and Jeffrey C. Sherman, and actress Leslie Ann Warren. So again, this is Wednesday, June 20th. It's at 7.30 p.m. at the Samuel Golden Theater, Wilshire Boulevard. And we will have a link um, to this event in our show notes. We also wanted to let you know that, well, Craig's hitting the road again, or I should say the ocean. And so uh, as a result, as a result of, of, of uh, traveling, yeah. he, uh, we will not have a show on June 22nd. So, um, yeah, it's just not worth it because I don't know if it'll be able to be posted correctly. And I believe I will be in the middle of the, uh, well, right up in the, uh, area, a body of water that mm-hmm. is right outside <laughs> of Anchorage, Alaska. So, um, I, I just don't know if it would be possible and you know, ship Wi-Fi, yeah. if you've ever been on a cruise before, you can never trust it. So it's, we're just playing it safe on this one. And so we're giving you an extra uh, long episode taking a week this week. So you can sort of listen to it over the next two weeks. Uh, I used yes, several <laughs> references for the preparation of this episode, including Disney's Grand Tour, Walt and Roy's European Vacation, Summer 1935 by DDA Gez, uh, Tony Baxter, the first of the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien, and 20 Years of Dreams, the illustrated album of of an incredible story by Jeremy Noyer. Uh, of course, that's about uh, Disneyland Paris and uh, during its 20th anniversary. And then online, the Disney Wiki. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Dis Unplugged? You can find me uh, Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Thursdays on the Universal Edition, Wednesday on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, uh, random days on the Dis Daily Fix, and as always on Twitter and Instagram at Oh, All right. Um, well, you can always Michael, send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And as we've mentioned before, you can connect with me and Craig at our Connecting with Walt Twitter page at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting Us Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show, leave some positive reviews and ratings. And uh, just to let you know, on Saturday, June 16th, if you are at the Walt Disney Family Museum, you will see me there. I will be attending the talk on about Walt Disney's Nine Old Men. So uh, if you're there, please be sure to say hello. And uh, we also want to wish everybody celebrating Father's Day a, a very happy Father's Day to you. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 